Hello, everyone. We are live. Nice to see you, Chris Rava. Likewise, Andrew. Hey, we're here at episode number six of the Geeky Bartender Podcast. And do you, can you believe it? We actually, yeah. We've actually done six episodes now? Yeah. It's, uh, it's still a thing. And we actually, we, actually have, <laughs> we actually have listeners now. Do you realize that? Yeah, it's exciting. I, 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 t- I talked to you a little bit about like how I was getting some feedback on yeah. the, the most recent one. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. Re- yeah, it is really cool. It makes it feel real, you know? All right, so you hit me with something totally different that I wasn't ready for today. So you, you want to start with that? Do you want to explain to me yeah. what exactly you put in my mouth today? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, today we are drinking the Brandy Crusta cocktail. Now, the Crusta is um, it's a pretty unique cocktail, right? It's and a I, lot different than what I was expecting. Yeah, and, and it doesn't really fit into a category of cocktail that exists or is popular today. Like, it's just not... It, it, it doesn't... It's kind of a, a, in a no-man's land so when of the wo- cocktail so family. So when was it popular? So um, it was popular in the, like, late 1800s, like, mid to late 1800s. I chose this cocktail because, historically, it's very important. Uh, So it was invented in uh, 1855 uh, by Joseph uh, Santini um, in the Jewel of the South uh, bar. I believe it's a bar. Jewel of the South bar in New Orleans. And it's actually... uh, so. New Orleans was uh, the birthplace of a lot of classic cocktails, including the Sazerac. Um, this one actually predates the Sazerac. It's, it's right up there. New Orleans, San Francisco, New York. Those are like the capitals of like cocktails. Yeah, of like classic in, in, cocktails. In the United States, yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. So, uh, yeah, so the, this was uh, invented in New Orleans. Um, and it was, uh, later, like, it was popularized by, uh, Jerry Thomas when he published his, uh, his, uh, Bartender's Guide in, uh, 1862. Uh, so he borrowed this, uh, this recipe and published it. And, um, there's some interesting things about this cocktail. So I'll first, like, I'll, I'll go into the ingredients, right? So this, uh, like the, I'll go into the specs that we use. So we use two ounces of cognac as the base spirit. We used a third of an ounce of lemon. Uh, We used one heavy dash of Jerry Thomas uh, decanter bitters, which probably translates to like two normal dashes. It's just the dasher opening on that bottle is is pretty large. Um, A bar spoon of simple syrup, uh, a quarter ounce of dry curacao, and me being me, uh, I put in two drops of saline solution because I'm a nerd like that. Of course. Uh, and then it's got a sugar rim, or at least, you know, I did a, a, a half sugar rim, served up with a long lemon peel, uh, slipped down, like, you know, around you know, the bowl really of the glass. It's really funny. Like, for you uh, listeners that can't see it, it looks like Chris Rava put a mustache on this, on this drink. <laughs> it's a Nick and Nora's glass, and Nick and Nora's glasses are... Uh, very cute um, glassware, and then he put like a very thick um, sugar rim on there. Yeah, I actually but I only used... on, but only on a part of it, so it looks like it's a mustache. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I used a pulverized sugar, so I uh, put regular sugar through um, my spice grinder, and that way it would like stick, but and like make this kind of crust 
uh, on the rim of the glass. Although I think next time I'll use baker's sugar um, because it, it just clumps up a little too much. But, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty nice. And, and the, the crusta is unique in that for, for a couple different reasons. Um, it was the first published cocktail with a sugar rim, right? So it introduced the idea, the concept of putting sugar or, you know, and later, you know, salt, putting something on oh, the rim I wasn't of the cocktail. Aware, I wasn't aware that I was drinking something so historic. Yeah, yeah, it's the, the first one. Um, it also is one of the first published cocktails that introduced the idea of the elaborate garnish. Like, it specifically says to peel um, a lemon, like, it says peel half a lemon like you would an apple, right? Like, like so in one long ribbon, and then you wrap it all the way around the inside of the glass. Uh, so this Nicanora glass is actually a little bit larger than the glass they would have used. Uh, you know, they would have used, uh, it's called like a fancy wine glass. I think we probably know it as like a sherry glass today. So something where the flare of the bowl of the glass actually curves inward a little bit and just looks more like a very small wine glass. So I, I didn't know. This is, uh, this is the original drink that every hard-to-please Karen wants at the bar. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that. That's what we were drinking today. Um, yeah, it's a. It's kind of a. In a lot of ways, a forgotten cocktail. Um, you know, it, it ended. It was well, not anymore. Right, right. It was very like you know, it was very popular. Like I said, in the mid to late eighteen hundreds, um, and then phylloxera came to France and made it really difficult to get cognac. When did, and when did you say it was published? 1855? 1855 is like roughly when it was invented. You, it was published in 1862. Do you want to know why that date is significant? Other than the invention of this cocktail? Mm -hmm. Do you want to know why that date is significant? Uh, I don't remember you're, off the time you're, it hit me. You're, you're going to laugh at me. That is the date that Marty McFly goes back in time in Back in, to the Future in 3? The, in the third Back to the Future movie. Wow. 1855? 1855. Yep. Man. That's when Clint Eastwood goes back in time. Wow. So um, it's, it's it's really, it's, it's um that was not intended, you know? But I didn't know that that was the date that this cocktail was invented. Or this cocktail yeah. was published. Published. In sorry. 1862. Yeah. Yeah. So um this is actually, it's, it's a riff on... The Fancy Brandy Cocktail, um, which is also from Jerry Thomas's book. And that one is very similar in that, except that it just kind of, it omits the lemon juice. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Fancy Brandy Cocktail is very similar to the Brandy Cocktail, except the Brandy Cocktail, I think, I believe, omits the... Um, Oh, There's actually such a thing, something called the brandy cocktail. Yeah. How unoriginal is that? Well, it at the time in 1862, it was original. It was the original, right? Like so, um, in 18 like yeah, so the the brandy cocktail I think doesn't include dry curacao. Um, the so it, it, when Jerry Thomas published his book, the cocktail was actually a category, right, of alcoholic drinks. It wasn't, now we think of it as like, you know, kind of any like mixed drink with like alcohol hmm. is a cocktail. But at the time, the, like cocktails were a category of, of drink um, and they were very boozy, spirit forward uh, and did not typically have citrus juice in them. Right. Uh, you know, like basically you'd 
recognize them. If somebody put like a, a brandy cocktail in front of you today, you'd be like, oh, this is basically an old fashioned served up with no ice in it, right? It's just like shaken with ice, but it's served up. You know, it kind of be like it, like like a Sazerac served up with no absinthe would be like, oh, this is a rye cocktail, right? Or like a whiskey cocktail. I'm doing air quotes, obviously you guys can't see that, but like like at the time, right? So there was you had the whiskey cocktail, you had the gin cocktail. Uh, in the same way, you also had like the fancy gin cocktail, the fancy so whiskey cocktail. People were just that unoriginal back in the day. No, man, they were invented it. They 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 invented. They weren't unoriginal. There was nothing for them to copy off of. So right. they were original because that's it. All they had at the time, like at the time, like that was that was it. You know what I mean? Like, like, like if we did that now, we'd be unoriginal. But at the time, like they were original, right? Um, it's funny to think about. Right? Yeah. And and thing is, is that the brandy crusta is the only crusta we think of now. But at the time, they were just like, oh, there's a whiskey crusta. The, you, the way that you say that, there's a were there, were there, crusta. Were there multiple crustas? Yeah. 100%. Like, I have the, the so reprinting of the This is the first time the I've book. even heard of the word crusta. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, you're just making that shit up. So, um, the crusta, is, it was probably called the crusta because of the the crust of the sugar rim, right? Like the sugar rim makes a crust on the side of the glass. However, there's like a legendary etymology. I think it's etymology. It might be, I can't. Etymology is the study of names. Oh, okay. So not an entomology with an N is study of insects. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. It's one of those. That's a, that's a word. It's either etymology or entomology, probably etymology. Anyway, um, the, there's a legendary etymology that saying that this is it was called a crusta based off of an uh, an ancient Roman tradition. Uh, in ancient Rome, they would take uh, they would like decorate the 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 rims or sides of cups, right, with like um, fancy like elaborate metal engraving or like uh, you know like vines or like grapes. But things that it was like very fancy, intricate, tiny metalworking that they would attach via rivets to the side of the glass. So you can't remove those. But the, that that you, those things. Are you things, saying the idea of a cocktail is as old as ancient Rome? No, 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 no. I'm saying that the the name of the crusta is based off of this tradition in Rome of putting fancy bling on the side of your glass um, because that. Fancy bling on the side of your cup, rather it was probably cup. Not Damn, we really are. We really are fancy right now. Um, that that concept, right, yeah. of putting intricate metalworking or like in, like or you know whatever it was on the side of your cup was called a crusta, right? Like that was a crusta on your cup, right? Like that. That's what that. So that's where that like that was another time that the word crusta was used, um, and it's you know so again this is like legend. There's no actual factual historical evidence that says this is where the name came from. Chris, we don't live in the time of factual evidence anymore. <laughs> so this is what you say. I disagree. Ha- I'm, if I'm this fighting is what, against that. If this is what you say happened, this actually happened. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, so like, the, you know, the cocktail, cat- like this falls under the cocktail category, mm-hmm. right? And again, again, you have to think about the cocktail as a category of alcoholic beverages. Uh, when this was published, and uh, 
you know, so what made this different and, and kind of groundbreaking at the time is that, like, this used citrus juice in a cocktail, in a cocktail, right, again, the family of drinks, uh, which was normally just all booze, just booze, sweetener, and bitters, like, that was pretty much it, um, you know, and, and so you, I mean, because at the time you had things like daisies and sours that did call for citrus, but they were in, like, their own category of cocktail, whereas, like, this was, like, some, it, basically this was, like, hey, I made a riff on an old-fashioned, but I put citrus in it. Like, and, and, and I also put sugar on the rim, right? And so people were kind of like, whoa. Like, that was like, it was pretty novel at the time. Um, you know, and, and now I said, I, I, I told you that we used a third of an ounce of lemon, right? And with, for any cocktail, any citrus cocktail, now a third of an ounce of lemon is very low, right? Like most citrus cocktails, anything with, with citrus in it, uh, like in the modern era, usually has at least three quarters of an ounce of citrus, right? Of either lemon or lime. So, you know, sometimes an ounce. Um, and, you know, there's, there are a couple that have, that call for a half ounce, but not many. Uh, so, you know, like we used a third of an ounce, which actually compared to the original recipe for the Crusta was, is high. The original like Crusta, the Brandy Crusta called for, uh, it measured its lemon juice in dashes. I think it called for three to four dashes of lemon juice, three to four dashes of uh, simple syrup or of um, gum syrup. So essentially, just a viscous simple well, syrup. We were, we were joking about that, but that's how old this cocktail is. Where like its recipe is measured in dashes. Yeah, and 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 the you know the, the we, don't, we don't do this shit anymore. Right, like actually the the measurement for how much brandy is a small wine glass, which is roughly translates to two ounces, right, in today's measurements. Are we sure about that? Uh, yeah, David Wondrich did that, did the conversion. Um, you know, like in his book Imbibe, you can like look at it where he's like, this is how much a pony glass is converts to in modern, like the modern measurements. This is how much a tiny wine glass con like converts to. Because yeah, they didn't have jiggers. Right? They just didn't have, like, they didn't have jiggers. They didn't have, like, ounce measuring uh, devices. So, it so was they even, just... It was even more of a not exact science back in the day. Right. You know, because it, it wasn't defined. It was in its infancy. They were making that shit up as they went along. Now we have historical sources. We played with it enough. We've standardized it. You know, like, now it's got this whole, like, like there are other bartenders to check you on your on your shit if you're like just going willy-nilly and free pouring everything right but that's back then so, they, they, so they were making rules for someone uh, so you taught me and matt wallace trained me and it was like no there is no such thing as a not exact science it's like all that shit is very carefully measured that was that was the way i was taught mm-hmm so to believe that there is like a time period where it was so inexact. Yeah, because I mean. That's bizarre, dude. Like these guys were the vanguard of the cocktail, right, movement, of, of, of like making cocktails. They were forging, like they were like blazing the this trail. Is, this, they dude, were at this the front. the same time period as um, George Ramos, isn't it? Isn't this the same time period? 
Um, that's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. But yeah, uh, I mean, the Ramos Gin Fizz comes from New Orleans. Uh, it probably is in the, I believe it's in the 1800s. I want to say late 1800s. Does that? But but I I don't know off the top of my not head. the not the mid eighteen hundreds. Right, like you know you have the golden age of cocktails, 18, which was 18, like late eighteen hundreds. Eighteen fifty five. That's before the Civil War, dude. Yep, that is so old. So yeah, you know these these specs like when when something calls for dashes of lemon juice, right? right. Like it, it was like three to four dashes of lemon juice, like two dashes of dry curacao. Two to three dashes of gum syrup, two dashes of uh, Bogart's bitters, which doesn't exist uh, anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, although it probably tastes similar to Boker's or the Jerry Thomas decanter bitters that we used. Um, but so, so, yeah. you asked, so hang on, you asked me, um, you wanted to do this uh, particular cocktail because it was like the precursor to so many. Well, How, it kind of what, like bridged what, the gap. What other cocktails would you consider this to be the precursor to? Well, okay, it is similar to, but not, not the precursor to the sidecar, right? Sidecar calls for uh, Cointreau or some kind of triple sec, or you know, dry curacao is a type of orange liqueur. Like you can broad category of orange liqueurs. Um, and it calls for it calls for lemon and it calls for like cognac. Um, although, you know, uh, I've had people order it with bourbon before and that's totally fine. I mean, and it has a sugar rim. I was about to say, if we're going to do a general umbrella, isn't the margarita basically a sidecar with tequila? Well, the, those two had a common ancestor, right? right? If we're talking about like sort of the genealogy of it, the margarita and the sidecar came off of the daisy. Right, like the Daisy style cocktail, which had a heavier citrus ratio, right? So that had more citrus in it. Um, whereas this was essentially the precursor to this was like the old fashioned style cocktail, right? What we would look at and, and recognize as, oh, this is similar to an old fashioned, right? This kind of is a riff off of a riff off of that. Um, whereas the Daisy was its own category and, and this was, you know, like, like this kind of got lost in the annals of history, um, but it was, it, it's just this weird offshoot of very boozy cocktails. Because this is surprisingly easy to drink, even though by volume, it's almost all cognac. Or not almost all, but it's like easily, it's, it's like three quarters Three quarters by volume of this is like cognac before you add the ice. Yeah, and the it definitely does taste like cognac to me. Right. But it's still like, yeah. And, and so it's not quite, like you can't quite taste the lemon. Again, we upped the lemon amount from what it originally calls for. Okay. Just, I think, to make it more balanced, okay. right? So in full disclosure, um, you know, you can look up the original Jerry Thomas recipe and just do lemon juice and dashes and tell me how that works out for you. But even with us upping like pretty significantly the amount of lemon and and you know curacao, um, e even doing that like the cognac is really present, and I don't actually think it very it tastes very much like lemon. It just kind of it's enough acidity to make it dry, right? But it's still like you get hints of the dry curacao, um, and and it's just it's still almost all like cold cognac right like it's still mm -hmm. like that's 
the majority of the flavor and aroma profile Definitely, is still yeah. that. Uh, and, it, and so it's it's interesting to me that this uses lemon, but it's so sparing that um, it's so sparing that it just kind of makes it dry. Like it's just dries it out. And then what's interesting is that if you put, you know, because of the sugar rim on, on you know, like, uh, and especially putting it only on half of the rim of the glass, you can kind of sweeten as you go. Right. You can like, you can, if you want, if you, if it's dry, if it's perfectly balanced for you, then you're good to go. You can just drink it. Otherwise you can like, there's that sugar rim where you can like add a dose of sweetness to it. If you feel like it needs a little bit more sugar. Um, yeah. So it's just a, a really interesting cocktail all around, uh, and, and important for like the history of it. Uh, one, one thing I considered and, and opted out of uh, is like this, is that in the late 19th century, uh, there was a slight adjustment to the, the, the crusta. It became very popular to add a little bit of maraschino liqueur as well. So like you kind of would split Sorry the about difference. Luxardo, right? Well, Luxardo is a, is a company that makes maraschino, but there are other companies that do as well. Lazzaroni makes a maraschino um, that is quite good. Marasca maraschino is quite good. Uh, it's like cherry liqueur, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, and it's 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 cherry, um, but it's like also it's also cherry pits, right? And because it's the whole cherry, uh, including the pits, uh, you get a lot of the like it kind of tastes almondy, right? I think that like a proper maraschino, you should get notes of almond of like marzipan. Makes and, sense, yeah. Because Actually, I, I can see that, yeah. Because uh, honestly, I think it's the like, uh, is it? Is it arsenic? Yeah, I think it's because of, like, if you've ever eaten just straight apple seeds, they kind of taste like amaretto. I've never eaten apple seeds before. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you should try it. Don't do it a lot because, yeah, they contain a tiny amount of poison. But, um, yeah, you, you get that, like, almond-y note. There's, like, almond notes uh, in a maraschino from the cherry pits. Um, you know, yeah, it, 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 like, and all kind of stone fruit has that where the pits kind of tastes like almond and I want to say it's due to the like like it's either arsenic or cyanide it's one of those but there's a tiny amount in there that gives it that flavor and aroma you know um interesting how poisons can do that uh are you saying arsenic is tasty I, I'm saying is that how far you're willing I, to go I, again I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head if it's arsenic or cyanide but uh one of them tastes like almonds right so I mean, if you're like, if you're ever, if you are, are afraid that somebody might poison you in that way, beware of anything that tastes or smells like almonds, because uh, that's how it's, or one of the ways that it's derived, I imagine. Uh, yeah. So, you know, fun little fact. Um, yeah. It's funny how the things that are terrible for you can taste and smell great. Yeah. Isn't isn't it? Isn't that isn't that? Isn't it really funny? Right. Not all the time, but it does happen. So, yeah, man. Um, cheers. I don't actually think we, we, we did a toast. I don't think we did either. Cheers. I, of course, am already done with mine because I drink all my liquids quickly. Yes, um, you do. So, um, um, we did actually... I did actually get some really nice feedback from our most recent episode and cool 
people it's exciting. People really like like specifically your opinions on some on th- some things. So it's like <laughs> it's funny. It's like you know, I, I I might be your best friend, but I don't often think that like you know. We disagree what, on yeah, plenty what, of things. Yeah, what Chris Rabba is saying. Oh, yeah, people love what Chris Rabba has to say. <laughs> I never would have thought that would have been the case. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm pretty surprised myself. But, uh, I, you know, ultimately, like, I, I'm, I'm glad people are enjoying it. I'm glad people are enjoying listening and, and enjoying the content. Like, you know, I, I, I love doing this kind of stuff. I love teaching about cocktail history and, like, nerding out about this stuff. Because, for I mean, for me, it's... It's just really, really interesting, the kind of evolution of, like, cocktail families. And and you can see the chain of, like, ideas of, like, this is a riff off of a riff off no, of we a were No, we were just doing that. And mm-hmm. I was actually just doing that, where it's like, yeah, I can actually see the logic behind how this gave birth to that and that gave birth to that. And it's like, it is really cool that, like, you know, if you if you follow it f- far back enough, it's, like, it's almost like a formula. Yeah. You know? Where it's like, what would you consider it to be? Would you consider bartending, cocktail making, quote unquote, mixology? Huh? I know you fucking hate that word. I hate, uh, I hate that word too. Uh, I, I, I've, I've come to, I've come, um, uh, I've, uh, we've come to terms, that word and I. Uh, I. I think that the thing is, is that there's no regulation on using the word mixology and it took on a connotation uh of 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 an extremely skilled bartender and because it took on that connotation but there was no kind of regulation over its use uh everybody just co-opted that word right you know what i mean uh without getting into too many specifics i don't want to throw too much shade um but uh Basically, uh, institutions, restaurants, bars, uh, people, etc., that uh, were maybe not uh, respected as cocktail makers or as highly skilled bartenders, um, they started calling themselves mixologists, right? And because of that, the word got devalued, right? And 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 because it got devalued. It, uh, those people that were highly respected in the industry, that were very skilled bartenders, they wanted to distance themselves from that word and they kind of like heaped scorn upon that word. And because they heaped scorn upon that word, um, it became a joke. And now is, depending on the circles you run in, uh, is almost like a term of, of, of derision, right? Uh, like it, it's, it's used to make fun of bartenders who think they're hot shit, but actually are like don't don't know like you know they can't actually yeah, hang they that, they yeah, don't know the ropes and that, is, and that is what it is, isn't it? Um, you know, if anybody calls themselves a mixologist, it's like I you're much better at this than I am. You want to raise your single eyebrow? <laughs> you know, it's like. Why, why, why would you why would you willingly call yourself that it's like yeah it, it, it's that that word has gone through an interesting uh, evolution um, uh, yeah in in the modern like bartending world where now it's 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 used in memes right yeah. it's used in bartending memes to make fun of bartenders 
who aren't very experienced. We have our own means, by skilled. the way. Yeah. It's, it's used, like, to make fun of bartenders who have a lot of pride and a lot of, like, are very pompous and showy and think highly of themselves, but don't actually have the skills and experience to back it up, right? So, but, look, it, I think that bartending is a perfectly respectable profession, uh, especially now, right? Um, and I think, that's, I think that's what I was taught, too. It's like, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't think of yourself as, like, you know, pompous. You shouldn't think of yourself as like someone that's better than somebody else. It's like every every kind of bartending. It's all just a, a way to make a living, and you shouldn't disrespect people. Right. I mean, I do think that like you can. There, there's different levels of skill of, of bartenders for sure. Um, you know, but but I think that uh, I ha- I take pride in saying that I'm a bartender. Um, and that used to, that you know, like, I'd say uh, 30 years ago, like, 20 to 30 years ago, that wasn't really the case, right? If you were a bartender, it was assumed that you were doing that to make ends meet while you were pursued what you actually wanted to do. And that's the type of stigma that I was taught to avoid. Right. And I, I think that we've come a long way in terms of, uh, of making, you know, like bartending uh, uh, into a, a, a proud and I, I, I mean that uh, kind of, well not so much proud as like self-respecting uh, industry and profession and so I, I can't remember if it was if it was Luke or if it was Matt that taught me this where it's just like you know that mentality of like you are a bartender because you are you're looking for your next thing Especially in L.A., right? Yeah. There's so many bartenders that are... What are they? They're, a, act, they're actors. They're, they're aspiring s- something they're, or others. Yeah, they're, and, they're and there's nothing right. wrong with that. There's but. not, but it's like... You can be a professional bartender. Yeah. That, that's okay. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. Right. It, that idea of like, oh no, you're just... It, it's an in-between job. Right. I think that L.A. is a little bit behind the times as far as major cities in the United States go for accepting that, like that reality that, oh, yeah, you can be a career server. You can be a career bartender. That's your passion. You like to, you like to do that. That's what you want to do with your career long term. Um, there are other cities. I think the one that comes to mind most readily is, uh, is Chicago. Um, I've been told by lots of, of industry veterans that in Chicago, it's totally acceptable that, oh, I'm a server. Oh, okay, cool. You're a server. That's, that's what you do. You, you're a server or I'm a bartender. Like, great. That's what you do. That's what you want to do. You're a bartender. That's totally respectable. Whereas, you know, a, a lot of times, and, and it's definitely as happens less so now than it did early in my career where I'd say people be like, oh, what do you, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a bartender. And they're like, okay, but what do you really want to do? Right. You know what I mean? Like, um, less so now, definitely a a noticeable drop off in terms of like, you you know, that kind of response. Um, but there are other cities, uh, I haven't spent enough time in Manhattan to, to really say so, but I believe that, but that's exactly why, that's exactly why I was taught, um, you know, um, 
the word the word bartender the word mixologist that's the reason why the word mixologist was so frowned upon by the guys that taught me it's like don't don't touch that word because that word is like it means that there is like levels to this bartending thing and it's not it's like it's all about people that just want to make a living for themselves you know and they're and they're all professionals you know yeah there's levels of skill sure but like let's not put a word associated with that let's not like attach this presumptuous fucking word and then to be like, oh, there's mixologists and then there's bartenders. Right. Implying that bartenders are the lesser of the two. And it's like, no. That's never what we that's never what I was taught to do. Right, right. You know, I, I think uh, this is a, a phrase that um I, I I learned very, very recently and, and I I kind of want to like adopt it uh and, and use it more often, but approaching something with uh Approaching something with a sense of uh, humility and fallibility, right? Recognizing that you always have more to learn, you can always get better, and you are always going to make mistakes and and fail, right? And trying to like approach things, uh, you know, and, and this can apply to so many different categories, but approaching bartending, the profession of bartending um, as like there's always more I can learn, right? doesn't matter how much experience I have, how much knowledge I have, how many, you know, like how much I've memorized. Um, there's always ways that I can do better. I will never be infallible in terms of like, no, my way is the right way. Everybody else can fuck off. Like every other way can fuck off or X, Y, and Z task is beneath me, right? It's like, no, no, you, you just approach things with humility Right. And um, and without that kind of pompous, pretentious attitude and and approach things with fallibility is like a recognition that that you are not the shit. You are not the end all be all. Right. You can always be At wrong. At the end of the day, what are you doing? You're putting liquid in a cup. Uh, I, I would argue it's more than that. I would argue that a good bar like you can be the best possible at uh, at putting liquid in a cup and that still doesn't make you. A good bartender, right? Um, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but uh, it's something I, I constantly tr- like r- remember and try to uh, talk, you know, tell other people who are looking for any kind of advice in the industry. Um, I, I still use it in job interviews. Is uh, the bartender is the host of the party, mm-hmm. right? And it's a Matt. That's from I learned that from Matt Wallace at the famous the, uh, the defender of the good times. Like the the bartender is the host of the party. Your job is to give people a good time, right? That's your job, right? Um, your ability to make good cocktails, that is one tool in the tool belt, uh, uh, you know, to, to give people a good time. But it's not the only tool, and it shouldn't be the only one you're relying on, right? If that's the only, if, if you're trying to fix every problem with a hammer, you're not going to be able to fix very many problems very well. Nope. So hone all of your tools. Get all of your tools up to par right? Keep improving on them. Keep them in good repair. Keep practicing them because they're all important in their own way. Um, you know, and you, you can't just rely on one, you know, like there, there's, there have been bartenders that I, I, you know, whose bars I've sat at who I know that their skill level is top notch, right? 
You know, I, I, I've sat in front of uh, bartenders who I know, like, they are the best cocktail making person or like cocktail historian in terms of their cocktail skill and knowledge they're the best in this city right and i've still walked away being like they're an all right bartender you know what i mean like you you can have the best cocktail knowledge like you know and be second to none and still be a shit bartender well this wasn't this wasn't going to be a topic of conversation so but yeah i kind of ran but, on a tangent but, here no what i have to ask you now that we're on this topic what is, in your opinion, the perfect bartender? Like if I had to pick a person? Just for you. Just for you. When you're sitting at a bar, what does it take to get a 10 out of 10 experience? Uh, honestly, uh, <laughs> Sam Ross. <laughs> Sam Ross. So Sam Ross invented, uh, among other things, the penicillin. A lot of modern classics. Dude, I fucking love that cocktail. Yeah, <laughs> among, uh, you know... Uh, it, it, like, if you throw a dartboard, if you just have a, a list of, of modern classic cocktails, right? Like, you know, ones that invented it, like, in the modern era after the year 2000, right? You just throw a dart, like, at this giant, like, list on your wall. Chances are, like, you got a pretty good chance of hitting a Sam Ross cocktail. You know, he worked at uh, the Milk and Honey, which was uh, now Attaboy, like, the original uh, location. Yeah, you've mentioned um, that on this podcast before. Right. Yeah, I... I New York, I, uh, New York City, right? Yep, yep, in Manhattan. Um, fantastic place. If you ever get a chance, definitely go there. Uh, he... <clears throat> I believe he is still a rep for Monkey Shoulder, or he at least does consulting gigs with them. Um, uh, I love Monkey Shoulder. <laughs> it's, it's good juice, man. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. And, you know, COVID threw everything into whack. So who knows at this point, mm -hmm. but, uh, every time I have seen that guy bartend, he like, I, I, I'm pretty critical, right? Not out loud. Right. But in well, my this head, is the reason I asked you the question right, in the first place, like in my head, I'm pretty critical of bartenders, right? I notice everything. I watch everything, right? Every single thing they're doing. The order in which they're doing it, how they're doing it, you know, how they multitask, like everything. I'm I'm paying attention. Well, right? I don't want I don't want to call out anyone uh, in specific, but we've been to, you know, just out when we're drinking, and we've been to bars where it's like, dude, we're trying to be patient, but these bartenders suck this much that like it completely ruins our night. Have yeah. we, haven't we been there before? We have. We uh, have. Do you remember which night specifically? I do. I do. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna call up the bar. No, no, neither but, am I. But yeah, I, I specifically I. do. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you and I both. It's like, if you're if you're trained, you get to see things. You know, you you have like a different perspective. Right. Like you know, I try my absolute best to be patient and like you know, kind and understanding and cordial. Like at a bar when I'm a patron, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I always think of, like, how would I like to be treated by a guest? Right. right? How there's would a, I... There's a, there's a certain amount of patience you have to have. Of course, of course. Um, but, man, every time I've seen Sam Ross bartend, everything he does is on point. Everything he does is on point. Like, his guest interaction, his ability to, like... he Like, he'll have, a, a, like, you know, like, uh, amazing guest interactions while cleaning all of his tools, Right in between making drinks, right? Um, he's constantly like doing multiple things at once, 
right? Like, obviously, his ability to, like, create and invent cocktails that, like, cement themselves as classics, right, is in the, in the modern era, I, I, I don't, he has very few people that are his equivalent, right? Um, so he's there. But how perfect is his mint? <laughs> Probably great, man. You know what I mean? Like when when he bartended for me at at, uh, at Milk and Honey, the original Milk and Honey. Like man, he, he he had so many ingredients. Just just a tray. It was a uh, it was I think it was shaker tins in crushed ice in a giant tray, like next to him with just a ton of fresh herbs, a ton of fresh fruit. Like just yeah. Uh, and and every there was no menu. Every cocktail was bespoke. Every cocktail was, what do you feel like drinking? Give me some elements, right? Tell me you want X, Y, and Z. And then he'd be like, okay, got it. And either he'd pull just on that, something just or that, just... Just that interview. What? Just that interview. You know, you're interviewing the customer. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And, it's like, and the, uh, what do we have at like the that? Famous? We had the Allow Me. Oh, right. All of them were that. Yeah, uh, exactly. So... Every cocktail was that, right? Like, there, there is no, like, you know, um, formula where he can just be very good, almost kind of robotic at making all of the ones on the menu, right? Like, no. He had to think on his feet every time. Every single drink, he had to think on his feet. Obviously, you have, you know, you, it's like jazz, right? But, like, like, like uh, I think I've, I've probably mentioned on this podcast, but one of my favorite analogies is that good cocktail making is like jazz, once you understand the, the, how the elements play together in all of the major cocktail categories, you can plug and play, right? Like there's a reason why if you take the same Negroni specs, you can pretty much sub out. there's so many cocktails that are like basically a Negroni. Right. And that's because like it, it's equal parts, Campari, Sweet Vermouth, Base Spirit. Right. That's the original one. Now, me personally, I play with that a little bit. I play with those original specs because I'm me uh, and I have, you know, uh, I, I have a, a strange both reverence and irreverence for the classics. Right? I respect them in terms of their historical position, I but you, I don't put them on a pedestal. I think you have to be that way, um, you know, when you're in the kitchen, you know. Yeah. If you don't, to one of my favorite YouTubers is a guy by the name of Chef PK. And he's opening up a uh, his own spot in L.A., or at least he plans to. And his whole mantra is, play with your food. Hmm. And it's like, dude, you have to. At some point, you have to. Play, play with your cocktails. Try something out. Just, you know, if, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. Whatever. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's important to know the basics, right? Uh, right. In the same way that for cooks, you got to know your mother sauces right. before you can riff on your mother sauces. you got to know wh- how all of the elements play together, why they're there, why they're there in, the, in that, those proportions. And then, like, once you know, like, okay, this is the general concept of, like, just going back to bartending and cocktail making. Once you know that this is the idea of the Negroni. Right. This is like how the concept of the Negroni is supposed to be boozy and bitter. Right. Boozy and bitter. That's the base. Like those are, you know, if you had to sum up the Negroni, boozy, bitter and dry. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, bitter, dry. Yeah. Bitter, dry. Same ish. But yes. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that that works. Dry works. Um, now, because dry is different. It, it's. Dry-ish, because Campari has a decent amount of sugar, depending on your sweet vermouth, 
could have a decent amount of sugar. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't use like you, you, it's on the drier side. I would say it's balanced, but yeah, I would say so too. Yeah. Boozy and bitter, but you can trade your gin out for mezcal, for tequila, for bourbon, right? That's how you get yeah, the boulevard. Yeah, that's a boulevard. Right, yeah. Right there, yeah. Uh, for rye, you know, for cognac, you, you, you can trade them, them all out, right? Like trade out your base spirit for pretty much any base spirit you want. And it's still a Negroni. And you can recognize it as, oh, this is a Negroni riff, right? Like, I, I, you know, or this is in that general category of Negronis. Um, so once you understand how all of the, the, the formula, how all, all of those pieces fit, why they work in, those, in the proportions like that they have, then you can just constantly riff, right? You can, you can just keep riffing. And so, you know, that's how I think you become good at making a bespoke cocktail. I think I've asked you this making the allow me, so to speak. I think I've asked you this before, but do you consider yourself more of a scientist or more of an artist? Yes. (laughs) Equal equal parts. (laughs) I I believe that uh, bartending is a culinary art. Um, I believe that it combines... uh, elements of and i don't want to put these into percentages because they're all i wasn't asking you right like you need hospitality you need um the like understanding of like the the balance of the elements Mm -hmm. right of your acid of your sugar of you know like of your sweetener of your bitter of your base spirit of your dilution uh your aromatics your garnish and your visual, like you need understanding of all of that. Um, and then from there, there's so much room for creativity, right? You can't, but you, you need both hand in hand. If you just have creativity without an understanding of how all of the elements balance each other, right? On a like culinary scientific what was the name, level. What was the name of the 10 out of 10 guy that you were talking about just a second ago? Sam Ross. Is he an artist or is he a scientist? I would, you know, I don't know enough about him personally to, to really say if I had to hazard a guess. In your, in your opinion. Yeah, I would say based on what I know, I think he's, he's probably both. I think that any great bartender is probably both. Um, because if you just have creativity, then you, like you'll have a lot of novel uh, uh, combinations of ingredients, but they can still very easily all taste gross. Right, and if you if you only know like oh okay these are the ratios of sweet to like bitter to like acidic to base spirit, you probably only make a handful of very boring things. Well, because you you brought up somebody uh, recently, um, the the gastronomist. Oh yeah, so I, I got him so, so bad so with names most of the time. But yeah, but he's definitely more on the science side. Where, like, um, he has he, he has that shit figured out down to a chemistry level. Yeah, that's so that's kind of like I think that, that that's his background. But I only know him from this one book, which is you know a sliver of his bartending philosophy, so to speak. Uh, so the book that we're referencing is called um, Liquid Intelligence, right? Yeah. Uh, and it is a very scientific chemical. Uh, approach to cocktail making and that, that's what it focuses on is it explores like molecular gastronomy um, you know you ha- he uses all the toys 
right? He's got the, the like, the vacuum, you know, like, uh, sealer, and, and uh, he uses liquid nitrogen, and, you know, he uses all sorts of, like, chemicals to change the, the, like, God, I, I don't, I don't even know how to really describe this, but like to like clarify things or turn things into gels or turn like he gets very into you know like that. That's the focus of the book is, but but. Uh, well, my reason for bringing that up yeah. is that like there are extremes to this. There are levels to this where it's like you know you can be more of a scientist or you can be more of an artist. I've always thought of my I've always thought of myself as a bartender as more on the art side. That's mm. always the way that I've I've liked to see it. I don't know if that's true from an outside perspective. I don't know. But um if I was gonna judge you though, if I was going to put <laughs> a a label on you, it's like, no, you really are like fifty fifty. And that's one of the reasons why you've always been one of my favorite bartenders. Not you're like, very kind. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that just to say it. It's like, yeah, Chris Braba actually is. You know, when you when you put him, you know, when you put him into a situation where he has to be one or the other, he can't. It's like he's always going to be fifty fifty. He's always going to be an artist and a scientist. It depends on what you. It depends on what questions you ask him. Yeah, I I think that both. So I think they're both two sides of the same coin, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that if you only focus on one side, you're really going to be missing out. You're really going to be limiting yourself. Yes, yeah. it's, it's trying limiting to, yourself is what right. I was going to say. Yeah, uh, I think maybe a better metaphor is: uh, Are you? Do you walk with your left leg or your right leg? And it's like, yes, like you know what I mean. And it's like you need both. You can't actually walk well. I. I don't even know how to answer that question. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that that really that's that's how it is. It's like you need both in tandem to be successful, right? To to, to be a successful bartender as far as the like cocktail making side of it goes. Not the hospitality side that doesn't really touch the hospitality side as much. Um, it, it, there's a little crossover. But yeah, it's like you need to walk with your left and your right leg. Uh, you need well, both. Last question on this before we transition, and this is actually a transitionary topic. What do you think about the world of Instagram bartending? Hmm. Because that's all about presentation. You have, well, you have no idea what any of those drinks taste like. Okay. Instagram is a medium that uh, can only communicate so much. It cannot communicate... Uh, taste or smell, right? It just can't. No, we have no idea what those drinks taste like. Instagram communicates uh, uh, an idea, like a concept, right? It can use words. It uses words and images to like create a concept in your brain, right? Those are the two, uh, or, or video. You can use sound too. To, to an, you know, sound is, is another uh, facet of the medium. Um, but th those, that's it, right? It can't touch your nose, right? You can't smell it or taste it. You can hear things via Instagram. You can see things via Instagram. You also can't touch them. Um, but, but, and, but you, I mean, you can imagine how they might feel, uh, but that's it. So Instagram is a medium, uh, that, you know, like at its very base level, it's a medium that communicates things, uh, on certain levels. 
and only those levels. So a cocktail for me is a holistic experience, right? You know, you have like the smell, the taste, the touch, right? Like the, the, the mouth feel <laughs> um, and, and you have the visual. Right, like, like there's uh, keeping in mind. I asked Chris this question, and he is an Instagram boxer. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, I, I don't. I'm not very active on Instagram, um, in terms of posting my own shit. Uh, I don't think you can hear cocktails, but I can theoretically imagine instances in which you can incorporate sound as an element of the cocktail. Oh, That's you should see possible. You should... Listeners, you should see him racking his brain right now. Look, it, it, it's possible. I'm, I'm not going to say that it can't happen because it's possible. Um, you know, but uh, like, yeah. So cocktails uh, are an experience that operate on multiple different wavelengths, so to speak. Uh, yeah, you can you interact with them w via multiple senses and uh, kind of the combination of those senses in tandem. Right, all of those things working together, mm -hmm. not just like all working separately, but all working together to create, um, to create the, something it's, it's that is more reason, than the sum of its the parts. The reason they're so satisfying because they appeal to so many of your senses. Right, um, and so Instagram can only communicate so much right. of them, right? And because it can only communicate so much of them, uh, like. The cocktails that I guess would gain gain more popularity or seem more attractive via the medium of Instagram are the ones that uh, skew towards the the visually uh, elaborate, right? Yeah. The visually attractive, right? Uh, the cock, the, you know, there are Instagrammable cocktails, right? A cocktail can be Instagrammable or not, um, and that is. How how you know how um, how strong is it on the on in the visual spectrum, right? Like like in terms of of that particular uh, aspect of a cocktail, because again, you know, it, it operates on multiple levels. That level, that particular level of the visual, right? How strong is it in that category? The stronger it is, the better it's going to seem via the medium of Instagram, right? And, as I, and so as I, as I said before, it. I don't. I have no idea how any of those cocktails taste. It's just they look nice, and that's all. That's all it is. Right, and then I think based on the ingredients, you can have an ingredient list that uh, uh, can you know definitely seem very intriguing or very interesting. But that's if you're even going that far in the first place, you know. Sure. Um, now, uh, as a follow up, I think it's. It's obvious that Instagram is a form of marketing in our industry, mm -hmm. right? It is, it is, you know, it's inescapable, right? Like, if you have cocktails that are very strong in the visual, on the visual level, right? Uh, that means they have a lot of marketability, right? Uh, because Instagram is such a strong marketing tool, and that means that the weight. Uh, in terms of priority uh, uh, of the visual element of a cocktail, it's gone up in value, right? How, how remember, visually appealing your cocktail is, there. is very valuable now, not as, like, and it wasn't nearly as valuable 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? Pre-Instagram. I remember being there where um, our manager was uh, making 
cocktails just to put on Instagram, and there was no booze in it. Like Ooh, he was, yeah, he, yeah. he was just making it all pretty. Yeah, that was it. That was all that it was, and it was a big lie. It's like this isn't this isn't a cocktail, but it's on Instagram. So people are like, "Oh, I want to drink that." And it's like, "Well, no, you don't want to drink that because there's no booze in it." Uh, yeah, it, it, I think that, I think that people, I I, I think that with uh, like younger like generations, because they've grown up with Instagram, very quickly realize that. Everything I see on Instagram uh, can be an ad, right? I mean, obviously, it depends on who it's coming from, but right. But uh, if you see a cocktail on Instagram, you should. I mean, the cocktails I've put on my Instagram are all real. They're all they all actually have booze in them, right? But but I can't prove that. The uh, the Big Mac on the billboard, right, was. Can could could easily have been a real burger. Yeah. Is it going to look like the Big Mac you buy? Nope. No. Nope. No. Nope. Right. Uh, so again, because the billboard is a visual medium, right? You can't smell it. You can't taste it. That's it. Like it, Dude, it, the 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 double double that you get that you see on all those ads on the way to Vegas. Yeah. They exactly. It, it looks way better. Like the onions, the onions in those double doubles look way better than any onions you'll ever get in an out burger. And I'm not even saying that I'm like criticizing it out. I fucking love it now. Yeah. Well. But those those onions will never look that perfect. <laughs> never, never, never. So I think you have to realize that, uh, like, keep in mind that Instagram is a visual medium. That because it has stru- such a strong marketing, because it is such a strong marketing force, it will be used for marketing. Right and marketing has certain priorities and certain goals. Right, there's goals of certain mark of marketing, and it's not always to communicate the truth. The reason I even bring this up in the first place, and you're right, it's not always to communicate the truth. The reason I even bring this up in the first place is because, um, you know, there's a different experience when you walk into a bar. You hang out at the bar. I mean, you, you've you been on record as saying that, like, sometimes you just like to go to a bar and just read. You know, it's... A lot it's, of times. It's a, different, it's a different experience. But the internet is a whole other beast. When yeah. You put, when you put shit on the internet, it's a completely different experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think that's a pretty good segue in, into our, our, well, our that, like... Well, that was topic of the day. Where, that's where I was going. Is that like the internet is its own animal, and it has its own culture, and dude, man, like multiple, yeah, multiple, like, yeah, yeah. It's it's not it's not even a single thing. It's like it's it's a hydra, dude. It has it has multiple heads, man. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of its own world, and within it, there are multiple like cultures and subsets of cultures. And, you know, like, you have I mean, multiple circles start, within the giant circle of the internet. Let's start with Yelp. All right. Let's start with Yelp. Sure. How do you, how do you, like, if, if you, do you even try? Do you want a good Yelp review, or does that does not fucking matter to you? Um, I mostly ignore Yelp. I don't use it to try to find, uh, 
to try to find bars and restaurants that I would want to go to. And I, uh, I, I don't uh, pay attention to. But if you got, if you got a five, if you got a five star review, do you care? Uh, it's probably worth like a literal thumbs up for me and that's it. Like I, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, that's nice, but it's, uh, it's the equivalent of like finding a quarter in your pocket. Nice. Or it's like, oh, I got a quarter. Cool. I, it's that level of nice of like finding a quarter in your pocket. I meant I mention it. I mention it because it's like, dude, I have submitted. I I am on Yelp. I submit reviews on Yelp, and it's like, yeah. Sometimes I get an experience that I just want to put a Yelp review on. Mm. And it's like, but even then, I know that I'm just. I'm just. I am committing to the the difference that is the internet experience, right? Someone that's reading shit on Yelp. That's only half the that's only half of it or even less than half of it, you know? If you want to go to if you really want to know what this is like, you have to go to the bar yourself. You have to be there. You have to sit there. You have to read at the bar, you know? It's a completely different experience. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I mean, Yelp is, look, like, there you, is, there Yelp, is, Yelp's no, a business, right? Hang on, hang on. There is no way that if I wanted to write a review about what it used to be like when I would go down on Tuesdays after raids and I would sit there with you and David Tran and you guys were playing Hearthstone behind the bar. When it was really slow. When it was really slow. Yeah, sure. <laughs> There is no way for me to articulate that into a Yelp review. There's no fucking way. I couldn't do it. No, there's no way. No, that was like, it was a completely unique thing. You had to be there. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to, uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's difficult to uh, accurately and adequately communicate a, a, a bar or restaurant experience via just a Yelp review. I mean, uh, there are professional bar and restaurant reviewers who are, you know, more skilled at it, but for your everyday person who doesn't practice that as their but profession... But they're, they're more you know, skilled at it. What do you mean by that? Well, they are practiced at evaluating bars and restaurants uh, on multiple levels accurately. They have a good frame of reference, and they probably are good writers. You know what I mean? Like... That's its own profession that takes, uh, you know, that requires multiple skill sets, right? And if you are good at those skill sets, you're good. You'll be a good reviewer, right? Um, your average person may or may not be good at those skill sets, right? And and uh, may or may not be objective, right? Like most reviewers are usually more objective. Than your average person, right? Think about when you post an Amazon review, right? When when do you like? I've never posted an Amazon review, <laughs> right? Well, for our listeners, okay. When are you motivated to post an Amazon review, right? Either you had a really bad experience, or a really good experience, or a really good experience, right? Or there was some incentive. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure uh, anybody who uses Amazon with uh, with any frequency uh, has absolutely bought a product, and when they get that product delivered, there's a little slip in the package that says, 
Like, leave us a review and get a free bottle of whatever. Leave us a review on Amazon and get, um, you know, uh, like a 90% off of whatever. Hey, if I ordered something liquid and they said get you get a free bottle if I leave an Amazon review, I'm definitely leaving an Amazon review. Right. And chances are you've now been incentivized yeah. to leave a good Amazon review. Right? Uh, especially if... They say, send us the review, and then we'll send it to you, right? Because they could easily look at a negative review and be like, oh, we forgot. We're not contractually obligated to send you anything. You're not going to change your mind if we send you something, right? You're not going to suddenly delete this review and post a good one. So, Chris, so, are, you, are you saying that everything that's on the internet is a lie? No. You can't make that logical jump. Not at all. Right? So, no. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that reviews, right, are, uh, when they're crowdsourced, are generally, like, are, are very susceptible to bias. Right? What I'm going to say is that the internet is its own beast. Is that it doesn't always mirror reality. But what's, what's really fun about the internet is that, you know, I can say that it doesn't mean a reality, but it is its own reality. I mean, hmm. it, it's, it's hard to talk about the internet in generalized terms in an accurate way because it is so massive and contains so many different things. You know, there are corner dark corners of the internet where truly the worst of humanity exists, right? Or, or operates. There are other corners, other pockets of the internet where you get the best in humanity that comes out, right? Like, There's something about anonymity. About, yeah. yeah when and, you can be anybody on the internet. And, and I think that that is pr certainly one of the... the one of the most novel things, like one of the, the, the aspects of internet culture uh, writ large. Time out. That Time is, out. you use the word, you use the phrase internet culture. I don't even know if you know how profound of a statement that is. <laughs> there is such a thing as internet culture. I, if I think I, it's if, cultures, plural, but if, yeah. If, if I had been more dedicated to my studies my master's thesis would have been on the culture of the internet. It's its its own thing. It's multinational. You know, you know, I can be on the internet and I can be talking to somebody from India and I won't even know because I can't know. I can't know that this person that I'm having a conversation with literally lives on the other side of the world. I can't know that. I mean, I'm sure depending on the context, uh, Depending on various variable variables, maybe, you could probably maybe I can make an assumption, right? But or I can't you can narrow it down, but I can't know that, right? I mean, I think that that broadly speaking, the internet has made uh, information, the spread of information, faster, lightning fast, right? Like yeah. faster and easier to uh, almost the entire world, uh, North Korea notwithstanding, right? Like uh, <laughs> North Korea and... Well, there's, and, there's China. They're, right, they're, they're, they're there's state the great censorship. firewall of China, yeah. There's, there's definitely state censor censorship at play in a lot of places. But um, 
in, in general, it's made the spread of information faster and easier globally, right? It is also made uh, tied to that spread of information or like, like uh, communication as well, right? Not just information, but, but person-to-person communication has made that faster and easier as well, but also brought with it um, instant, uh, the ability to have that be anonymous, right? Have sources of information, sources that's of communication. Not always a good thing either, right? Be anonymous, and so you get like that. That's led to uh, some very unique outcomes, right? That's led to some very uh, interesting outcomes uh, that are not mirrored in other uh, in other mediums of communication, right? Like in other mediums of communication, uh, you know, like if I'm on a phone call with somebody in general, like I know who I'm talking to, right? Um, And vice versa. If I'm, you know, being broadcast via television. If you're sitting at a bar, you know who you're dealing with. Right. If I'm talking to somebody, if I publish a book, right? Any other mediums of information transfer, right? Right. And, And I use that to mean both like information where and communication right so back and forth communication between one or more people or information in terms of like this is just pieces of inf- a piece of information that exists that other people access and so it's not them interacting with another person in do, real time you know, or back and forth do you know that my dad got really big into the planet x conspiracy theory Oh god, the, the, I don't even remember what that was. There's been so many conspiracy theories. It's kind like of just okay, so it's a uh, flavor of it, the it's, month. it's a ninth planet that apparently exists outside of the solar system, and it's big enough where it's like the size of Neptune, and the conspiracy theory is that it's on a a certain elongated elliptical orbit that it's going to crash into us one of these days. And apparently, the ancient Assyrians like had this belief that this is going to happen. Uh, I mean, my my dad got into this where it's like <laughs> I, I told him, I'm like, dude, dad, if you fall down the YouTube rabbit hole, you're never going to come back out. Uh, I mean, I, I tried to warn him, but he's like, ah, like, look. As far as conspiracy theories go, that one's pretty tame. Yeah, you, know you know, and that's a really good point because it's like what is it about you know something about the internet is really fucking funny because it's like dude you know you start with something really simple and then you get to a point where it's like oh yeah planet x is gonna crash into the world and it's like and then you get even further you're like oh yeah now the earth is flat you get even further and now you're like Donald Trump QAnon is, level yeah, right Donald Trump is like the the one person that's saving us from a global pedophilia ring that exists that that started in Hollywood it's like where the fuck do we go from there yeah i mean okay so so one i think like obviously the dissemination of information be, being so fast being uh you know with, with the potential to being to be an like anonymous right, right? um can definitely makes for fertile soil for that kind of thing, right? Um, it's very easy to like, like, like these sources of information, like YouTube videos. It they just leapfrog, 
right? Like you just get, um, you know, like suggested. You, you. I mean, you, even you, even uh, my channel, even my channel can be considered to be conspiracy theories because I'm talking about how the Last Jedi sucked, and that's my channel. But if you talk to the right person, I'm the one. That's being a conspiracy theorist. Well, okay, I, I don't know. I don't think that counts as a conspiracy theory. Well, I think I mean, that's it, just but like... that's but that's my point is that depending on how depending on who you talk to, the perspective completely changes. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I I got a couple things I want to say on this because information can be anonymously and quickly disseminated. Right. Too quickly. <laughs> well. Man. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to not comment on whether what counts as too quickly. Uh, I don't even know if that really makes sense to say. Um, like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. T- too quickly for what? But, but I'm going to set that aside. So you have, essentially, it's you have so many, you can think of it as like, you have a bunch of voices shouting in a room, mm-hmm. right? And some of them may be true, but because it's so easy to become another person shouting, like to be a person shouting in the room, it's very easy for those true voices to get drowned out, right? And once you have enough voices shouting a million different things, uh, people don't know who to listen to anymore because it seems like everybody's shouting at the same volume. It's information overload. Right, everybody's shouting at the same volume. So I don't even, you know, you get the like, like uh, I don't even know who to believe or what to believe anymore because it's so easy to make things seem legitimate on the surface level. You need to be able to think critically, right? You need to be able to like have that kind of academic mindset of I am going to be critical of my sources. I'm going to look for biases. I'm going to look for like, how do you back up your statement? Are you saying that people need to be educated? Well, I'm, I'm saying I, I it'll, it would help. Because that's sounding a little bit like an elitist to me. Yeah, I mean, go fuck yourself. Uh, <laughs> like, um, no, I, I think... I'm well, being completely sarcastic, listeners. <laughs> I'm, I'm really trying to egg him on. And right. I, answering I, the I, questions the right way. I think that how education got attached to elitism... Which is its whole, own philosophy. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's its, its own, own other... Yeah, that's, that's a whole other, other thing, podcast, yeah. to be honest. That's a whole how other podcast. Did, how did that happen? Uh, yeah. we're, I'm, we're not going to answer that we, question. We don't, have, we don't have an expert. I don't think anybody can answer that question. Uh, that's not true. I'm, there's plenty of experts out there. I'm sure somebody can. Um, in fact, I would say probably, if I had to hazard a guess, uh, Cornell West. Um, he's a, a professor at Harvard, I believe. But he, he's like one of the biggest uh, modern-day philosophers. I'll have to email him. <laughs> well, no, no, look him up. Uh, I actually listened. He was a guest on a podcast I listened to last night. Um, by the way, that so this podcast is called Steve Carroll's Mindscape. Steve Carroll's a physicist. He's the host, uh, and he brings in tons of guests. Uh, it, it's very uh, an academically minded uh, podcast. It's like a TED Talk. Yeah, but like you know, hour and a half long, and and but yeah, and, and so between like a TED two talk. and two between two experts about a particular topic, but very interesting. Um, this is the first time I heard Cornell West. I'm, I'm, I really want to say that that's his name. Uh, his last name is definitely West, but I believe his first name is Cornell. Um, man, I'm, I'm so like in awe. The way that this dude just talks 
is poetry, right? He just talks in a way that is poetic. Like, every, every like he's just a, like a, a born orator. Like, you just want to listen to him. He could be reading the nutrition facts on a box of Fruit Loops, and I would still just be in, like, in so we're awe. So talk, we're talking Morgan Freeman level. Like, like just every, the way he phrases everything is poetry. It's, it's amazing. Like, if you haven't heard him speak at length, absolutely do yourself a favor and, and look him up. Because he puts things, like, so poignantly and succinctly and, like, in a way that's moving, right? Where you're, like... Yeah, like you just like it resonates, right? Uh, anyway, great guy. So, um, and he touched on this a, a little bit in the podcast I listened to uh, in that podcast episode. He touched a little bit on like elitism and and how it got, like how academia, you know, start like was became viewed as like tied to elitism. Um, and, and but again, we're, we're not going to go into this. So, oh man, I got to backtrack a little bit here. Uh, what were we talking about? Uh, oh yeah, education, right? So being educated definitely helps, right? Because you are trained to back up what you say with sources, right? Uh, think critically about who the author of a source is, where they're getting their information, what their biases are, right? And so you, you're, you know, I think thinking critically about your sources of information is vital, right? I think that it is a, a great way uh, to, to build up your immune system uh, from bullshit, right? You know, against bullshit. Uh, you know, and and it, it takes practice, right? It absolutely takes practice. See, I'm, I don't even, you know, I don't even think that you have to be critically educated. I think you just need to learn how to question things. And for me, that's my source of that comes from stand-up comedy. Well, you know, I'm a, hmm. I'm, I'm a huge fan of George Carlin. I'm a huge fan of Richard Pryor. And all of those guys ever did was teach me that, like, if you can laugh at what you think, that's it. That's all you got to do. You, you just have to be critical of your own thoughts. You have to be critical mm. of, like, the information that people are telling you. And that's all you got to do. And if you can just do that, if you can laugh at yourself, then that's it. You just need to be able to question things. It's an interesting perspective. Mm. And I don't, I, you know what, the whole elitism thing, you don't have to go that far. You know, all you got to do is be able to question your own beliefs. Whatever you think you know question it doubt yeah. it and that's all yeah a healthy level of skepticism uh and a willingness to uh a, a willingness to uh engage uh with people who disagree with you right? and, that's, and that's all which is easier said than done and that's all me. that's all you need to do in order to survive on the internet is that you just need yeah. to be able to whenever you see something that's posted on the internet whether it's facebook instagram whatever Question it. Yeah. Whoever whoever that is is full of shit. Not until no, until until not proven necessarily. Until no, 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 proven not necessarily. I mean, yeah, you you can you can you know there there are certain sources that if if they have a history of credible information, right? Then well, a sure. At that point, you don't credible, question it right away. Right. A verifiably question, like you know, like credible information. 
then they are become authority, right? Like this kind of uh, brushes on um, the 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 sources of knowledge, right? It, it, the the pillars of knowledge in uh, in a philosophical sense, right? You have knowledge from uh, experience or empirical knowledge, right? Like right, yeah. actually, like you know, again, like like seeing, feeling, touching, interacting with something and knowing it to be true based on your like you know sensory experience of it, um, or like doing scientific tests, right? Like empirical knowledge. You have knowledge from authority, right? Which is somebody who has either done the empirical, either has the empirical knowledge themselves or has taken from other authority figures who've done the empirical knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down the line, right? But uh, somebody can become an authority if they have credible, verifiable information and a history of uh, credible, verifiable information. It doesn't mean that they're not wrong sometimes, but it means that in general, right, you can kind of like approach them uh, as a, like a generally trustworthy source. But that's one, another pillar of, of knowledge is the, the, you know, like the, the knowledge from authority. Um, you have logical knowledge, right? Things that can be proven uh, regardless of what exists in the world, right? Like the identity property, like, you know, uh, all black cats are black, right? Uh, it, you know, like A equals A, uh, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? Like they, there are things that you can know. And I think the, the scope of what you can know to be logically true is relatively small, uh, although you have the entire field of geometry, which can be known uh, without you're getting, any, little, you're getting a little abstract here. Fair, fair. I, I mean, this is like for me, this is big. Uh, like this is important. The, the like pillars of knowledge and recognizing what pillar of knowledge you're using or what combinations. You also have skepticism, right? Which is like I guess the rejection. It's not so much a pillar of its own as it's a rejection of the other pillars. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, but yes, knowledge from authority is a real thing, right? You just gotta like know your authority figure, right? Like know where they're coming from, uh, what their biases are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. So I guess let's get back to the, to internet culture and like anonymity. I mean, I, I don't know. Do we, do we touch on everything you want no, to touch No, no, we're, uh, we're still talking about it. It's mm. like, you know, how do you know if someone is an authority online? You know, when you just, when you just read something random, if you if you see something that's like posted to your feed, how do you know it's real? How do you know it's true? Uh, it's difficult. You got to do some digging, right? You you have to do some some digging for sure, um, because uh, for anybody that's seen the social dilemma on Netflix, you know this. Um, but uh, social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, um, they are designed to be addicting and to capture your attention and keep your attention for as long as possible. Like They're living, not interested. We're living in a world, Chris Rava, where Reddit was able to, like, inflate the price of stock. Like, right. And that, that happened really recently. Yeah. It, it, they created their own bubble. Yeah, and that has to do with, like, the spread of information um, and, like, rapid spread of information. Um, but... You know that just, just, you know that I just original... want to finish. I just want to finish okay. on the yeah, social yeah, media fin platform fin finish. before we move on. Um, so you know, uh, Facebook and Instagram, their algorithms, right, are uh, designed 
to um, their algorithms are designed to capture your attention, right? right? To keep you scrolling for as long as possible because right. the longer you're there, the more like the more ad revenue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, they're not interested in making sure that you get what's true. They're interested. Those algorithms are interested in sending you whatever content will keep you there longer. That's it, right? And a lot of times that happens to be inflammatory uh, or, you know, like uh, not entirely true or blatantly false information, right? It tends to be like it's, it's clickbait shit, right? It's shit that like will capture your attention, you know what I mean? Things that will hook you, like, uh, it, you know, and it d doesn't matter to these algorithms if it's true or not. Like, uh, you know, a good line that I learned from The Social Dilemma is that if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product, right? I've, like, heard, that. I've heard that line yeah, like, before. Yeah, like, that's it. So they're making money from you, right, by like, by, so that's what the algorithms are designed to do. So just remember that, right? Like, Facebook isn't a way to get news, right? It might, like, happen to be a way to get news, but... It, it, it's not like a news source, like an, a news outlet. It's just not, right? Although, I mean, they have their own thing, right? Like that, that the, those are a business as well. So that's its own topic, but yeah. Um, but yeah, like uh, Wall Street bets, we can we can touch on that because that's a fun, well, I'm, that's I'm a very just, interesting I phenomenon. I bring it up because it's like, you know, we're talking about how you can't trust anything on the internet. Well, but, not that you can't trust anything, but that it's it it is a fertile ground for the dissemination of information that may be true or false. Yet, if you get enough people together, they can create their own reality. Well, yeah, because it allows for communication, right, to to happen so widely and so quickly, uh, like widespread, you know, quick, easy communication. Um, can foster like essentially social movements, right? Or it allows multiple people to enact a collective will, right? To collaborate, right? It allows for, there's a reason. So you use that phrase and I'm like, oh, he's talking about the Borg now. <laughs> well, there's, there's a reason that, uh, you know, we're, we're talking like, like around the time of the American revolution is what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of. Um, there, there was a reason that, like, the enlightenment like, is well, well no, 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 um, that uh, lots of governments, right, that were under monarchy, right, like a monarchy rule, they limited gatherings of people, right? They, they limited private gathering sizes because if you keep people separate, they can't collaborate, right? And that means even though those that are poor, those that are powerless, vastly outnumber the powerful. An, indiv an individual person is not very powerful, but right. a group of people. Right. Yeah. You know, you can think about it writ large, and it's kind of a paradox, right, in a lot of ways, that the majority of people, right, are poorer. Like, like the, the majority of people, like, you know, we don't have a quality of wealth across the board, right? There is, like, in most countries... Right, even in the modern era, and this was, I think, more so true 
uh, you know, a few hundred years ago. Back when this cocktail was first being <laughs> Back when this cocktail right. was first being Well, ordered. yeah, I mean, like a few hundred years ago, you had massive wealth inequality. You have less so now, but you still have a lot of wealth inequality. And, and I think if an alien were, you know, if an alien species were studying us, they'd be like, why don't the poor just take everything from the rich? They vastly outnumber the rich. Why don't they take them? Like, take their stuff and, and, and just divide it up. And, you know, like, it kind of seems like a paradox of, like, why doesn't that happen? And the, the thing is, is that their, like, the systems were created to keep, like, like and, and this is a huge, broad topic, but systems across multiple levels, all right, have been created to prevent that from happening. Right, but that's but that's exactly what was happening with Wall Street bets. Yeah, yeah. You, when when you have the ability, right, for lots of people to collaborate quickly and easily, then um, you know, like, uh, then, then they can the, do that. The they can, will they can, eat the rich. Right. Well, then they, they they can they can enact right their collective will, right, because they can collaborate. They can come to a consensus and they can say together we are powerful. Right. Individually, we are weak. Together we are powerful. What goal can we unite on? Right? Uh, yeah. Um, and so then you, and you have the phenomenon like Wall Street bets, where you have a couple people that noticed, like, oh man, these guys are being greedy. And they put themselves in a precarious position. I, and when I say these guys, I mean like the hedge funds, right? Mm -hmm. They put themselves in a precarious position, right? Because they were greedy. And as long as nobody noticed, right, they would get away with it. And they'd make lots of money, but we noticed because we're the internet, and 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 we can do something about it if we all band together. And then they did, right? Uh, so yeah, uh, internet's a uh, internet is a fascinating uh, uh, you know, tool. I, I know that. Uh, um, yeah. Last thing Medium. on this. Last thing on this topic. I know that you're a huge fan of anonymous. I so. I, w I was. Yeah, I, I was. Because it's fascinating. Because that's It's fascinating. Anonymous is not one individual. Well, of it course. Can, it right. can be many different things. And sometimes you agree with it, and sometimes you don't. And my whole point in bringing that up is that, like, Anonymous has done some really cool shit over the years. You know? Um, I forget what was the most recent example. Um, I think it was the... Um, um, that explosion that took place in Lebanon. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the government really didn't want that shit on the internet. It, they really didn't want people seeing it. But Anonymous was like, nah, we're going we're gonna to make sure that everyone saw, saw this, you know. Right. I, I mean, I think, like, Anonymous is kind of a symbol of what can happen when you have large-scale collaboration and anonymity, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's kind of this phenomenon that uh, that encapsulates what the internet as a medium, right, can do. Is capable of. Right, is yeah. capable of. And again, it, it, it's a medium, uh, can be thought of as a tool, uh, or rather a medium that encompasses lots of tools. Um, and it's not necessarily good or evil, right? It, it, it can be utilized for both. Uh, you know, like, th there are things that were attributed to, like, um, air quotes anonymous, right? Like, 
collaboration of I mean, anonymous even, actors. Even what I just said might not be true. I mean, right? You know, I, 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 there's no way for me to know. Right? Anonymous is more of a symbol right. than you know than any particular group of people. Um, but uh, you know, there have been things attributed to anonymous that were really cool, really great, and also things that were really awful. Right? Um, and it it you know like like QAnon is born out of the same kind of a the same uh, primordial soup, so to speak. Uh, QAnon was born out of it, but you also had a lot. You know, they they did lots of good things, right? Like protests against the Church of Scientology. Um, things like uh, uh, they it's were true. yeah they were able to, at, at some point there was a drug cartel in Mexico. Uh, I believe it was Mexico. This was a few years ago that kidnapped a bunch of people, right? And nobody could do anything about it because they were this drug cartel was so well connected, and somebody or buddies like like people from like uh, anonymous right or like they called themselves anonymous said we have we were able to get a list of like you know uh, of all of the people that all of the government officials that are on your payroll right all of the government officials that are being bribed by this cartel. If you don't release these hostages, we'll release this. Every single government person you have bribed that's on your payroll will be disseminate all of that information. And that's it. They, they, they won. All of these hostages were let go. Right? Like, like and, and, you know, I, I think that uh, what's one thing to note about anonymous, right? That like symbol is that they're willing to act outside of the laws of any state or government, right? And like any nation and that's state. that's part of the reason I even want to bring this topic up of like, the internet is bigger than you or I. It yeah. is like... Oh, dude, yeah. It's, or any it, nation. Dude, it's... And that's the thing. It's so huge. And it is multinational. It's multicultural. Yeah. It goes beyond, you know, just me living in Los Angeles. You know, I can have a I can have a conversation with somebody that lives on the East Coast instantly, like yeah. it's nothing, and it's crazy. It's crazy to think that like something this powerful exists and we don't give it enough. We don't give it enough respect. I think. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I I think we often take it for granted. That's right. That's another way to say. Um, it. I think that younger generations who've only grown up with the internet are more likely you know, to take it for granted. I, you and I remember the time before the internet. Right. And I, I was, absolutely I was, remember I was the time about, before uh, the internet. Yeah. yeah. We're making collect calls, be like, Mom, come pick me up. You know, yeah. Like, like you and I we definitely remember, um, I mean, we remember the age before cell phones as well, but we definitely remember the age before the internet. And so I think that we can still appreciate, right? We're, we don't take, we're not as likely to take it for granted, but I still take it for granted. You know what I mean? Um, uh, you know, absolutely. Dude, do you realize the kids that were born in the year 2000 are legal drinking age now? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about kids that literally were born in an era where the internet always existed the way that it does now. Right. Well. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, well, I mean, you still had dial-up. 
I think until you got high-speed internet, the internet didn't really exist the way it did. You know, I think yeah. the Doyles might have had a high-speed internet back in 2000. Really? I think so. Yeah. I'm not, I am I think it might have existed for that long. Yeah, I don't know. My memory gets fuzzy there. Uh, but um, Whatever. We were still playing cops and robbers back then. <laughs> for sure. Um, All right, Chris. Anyway. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, dude, we've covered so many topics. Gone on a journey. And, yeah, and this cocktail, you know... This is definitely a Chris Rava cocktail. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm glad you made it for me. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, to all of our listeners, if you're still with us, thank you for joining us on this journey. Thank you for listening. Chris, are you ever it. going to make cocktails on your Instagram? I know. I keep saying I will. I, I mean... Uh, you should. I think I think that if you did... Um, num- two things. Number one... It would be a nice bit of exposure for you. But number two, I think you'd actually enjoy it. Because I know that you like being a bit of a ham sometimes. All right, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. If any of our listeners, right, email you, right, or, or like, like email us, email, uh, what's, the, what's our email again? The geeky bartender at outlook.com. Right. Or uh, you message me on Instagram. Uh, so at Chris D. Raba. Uh, my last name's R A B as in boy, A. Uh, so, uh, like the geek, the geeky bar, sorry, say the email one more time. The geeky bartender at outlook.com. Right. Or message me on my Instagram, uh, at Chris D. Raba. Uh, if you request a cocktail, right, that, that not only one that you want to see made, but that you want to learn about like the history of, uh, Dude, there's so much it. history in this particular cocktail. Yeah. I, I will make it. Um, uh, I'm gonna probably regret doing this. Don't, don't request the Ramos Chin Fizz. Another time, don't request the Ramos Chin Fizz. I know a ton of the yeah. I that that's another conversation. Don't request the Ramos Chin Fizz. But other than that, uh, any other cocktail, right? Like yeah, hit hit me up and uh, and I'll make it and I'll I'll talk about it. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, this was fun. Until next time, everybody. Indeed. Um, you guys can check me out. Um, my YouTube channel is KT Vindicare on YouTube. Um, you guys can find me also at the Geeky Bartender at Outlook.com, like we just said. And then, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so, until next time, Chris. All right. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>